Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is a bonus episode of Yoga Land. So this is not a part of the summer series. This is a decidedly more somber episode, and I'm guessing I haven't figured out the title of it yet, but I'm, I'm guessing that you're going to know from the title that it's more somber. I, I've been thinking about this episode for a few weeks, and I'm just driven to put it out there and use this show and this this little little platform that I have to try to put some empathy and compassion into the world. A few weeks ago, two very high-profile people here in the U.S., Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, committed suicide. And it happened within the same week. And it was, I think, profoundly shocking for so many of us. They're both really beloved people. And they seemingly had it all. They were both very wealthy. They were high achievers. They were at the top of their fields. They were both creatives and seemed to be doing what they loved most in life. They both had many people who loved them. And it was not outwardly obvious to any of us, of course, because we don't know their inner lives that they were depressed. So I was really shocked, as so many of us were when this happened. I was really, really saddened by especially Anthony Bourdain's death. We are huge fans of his in this family. And I noticed myself kind of doing what so many of us do after a suicide, which is, I think I think of it as an unconscious way to disconnect ourselves from the person's experience and to say, how could that have happened? And I'm so shocked and I can't ever imagine getting to that place in my life. Um, I think that's a very natural reaction. But I read two stories that kind of helped me change and reframe that reaction. One of them was in USA Today, and one of them was on NPR. And I will post links to both of them in the show notes page. I think they're just the most helpful and most important pieces I've ever read about suicide published on large, you know, audience platforms. So the USA Today column is from a columnist. I think she's a regular columnist. And she basically talks about how she went through a period in her life of having suicidal thoughts and that people couldn't take, wouldn't take her seriously. Like even her own family didn't see her as the kind, quote unquote, kind of person who would ever have those thoughts. And the reason she wanted to share that with the public was because the research shows that if people are more open about sharing the fact that they've thought about suicide, it can have a positive effect on other people who are going through a suicidal crisis. So in her column, she lists people who have actually attempted and survived suicide, Halle Berry, Elton John, Drew Barrymore. And then she lists people who considered suicide but didn't go through with it, Oprah, Michael Phelps, the swimmer, and Demi Lovato. She goes on to walk us through her story of how she indeed survived this crisis and, you know, came out the other side and and, and is living, you know, a happy life now. The NPR story was actually kind of a similar story, uh, you know, a young woman who walked us through her own experience of becoming very, very anxious and one night having this fleeting idea uh, that she should should jump off the, I think it was the Brooklyn Bridge. And 
she called her therapist and her therapist said, you know, if you really can't make it, if you really feel like you can't make it until our appointment tomorrow morning, you're going to have to check yourself into the hospital. And she realized at that moment, she really didn't want to go to the hospital. And so she realized at that moment, she sort of had to fight for her life. And she talked about how she went to a friend's house who, where there were a bunch of people over watching movies and she didn't know them that well. So she didn't talk about her mental state, but she just sat on the floor of this living room while everyone was, was watching this movie and kind of huddled around herself and just thought, kind of rocked back and forth and felt like she was fighting for her life. So reading both of those stories really woke me up out of that place of, of disconnection and disbelief. And reminded me of the feeling that I had when I was 23 and going through my first bout of depression and felt like I was fighting for my life. And they reminded me of when I was 27 and had successfully gone off my antidepressants for a few years and then suddenly out of the blue started having panic attacks again to the point where I felt like literally like I had fallen down a black hole. And those stories point out very clearly that the more we can talk about these things openly, the more we can potentially help people who are in the midst of a suicidal crisis. In other words, it's incredibly helpful for people to know that this can happen. You can have a period of deep darkness or anxiety or suicidal thoughts, and you can get through it and live to see the other side. So if you're new to the podcast, I have a longer episode. It's episode 49, where I talk about my first depressive episode and the shame that I felt for years about having this tendency and needing to take antidepressants to regulate it. And I clearly, if I'm speaking about it so openly, I I feel no shame about it anymore. And I just want to put that out there first and foremost. And I know that there are people for whom medicine doesn't work, but I just want to encourage you if it does work for you to feel okay with that and to embrace that. It can be a lifesaver. For this episode, I want to talk through some of the things that helped me in this quote-unquote fight for my life. I've thought about it a lot over the years, and I thought it might be helpful to put it in one place for people. And so the very first thing I want to say, if you're listening, is that, and I want to say this to people who are going through perhaps this this really difficult time of depression or anxiety or suicidal ideation. I also want to say it to people who've never been through it, which is that depression and these experiences, they they talk to you, quote unquote, and they tell you that you are defective and they tell you that you are broken. And I'm here to tell you that you are not. You are a hundred percent not broken. You're not a bad person. You're not a defective person. You're not worse than some other person. You are a whole person and your depression or anxiety is talking to you right now. I was on Rosie Acosta's podcast recently and she actually asked me about that period of depression and did I have any advice for people? And I brought this up. I brought a few things up that I want to talk about here. Rachel Yellen, who was on the show a few episodes ago. And I used to talk about how like we would share our fears with each other, let's say, or, you know, like our dark thoughts or whatever. And we would feel comfortable saying to each other, that's the depression talking. That's the depression talking. And having another person kind of who I trusted 
check me on that and kind of be able to see what I couldn't see was incredibly helpful. So I don't know, that's just one thing that I think is can be very helpful is to think of it as not necessarily as as your identity, right? So you're not necessarily overly identifying with it. You're trying to create a little bit of space between what you know is you, a loving, deserving person of love, just like anyone else. That's just what living beings are. And this, I don't want to call it a disease, but this this uh, condition that is kind of raining on your parade right now. I mean, that's an understatement, but okay. So that's the first thing I want to put out there is that, you know, there are wonderful, <laughs> highly successful, perfectly lovable people out there who have been through what you might be going through right now. And so what you're going through doesn't make you less of a person, doesn't make you a bad person, doesn't make you an unlovable person, doesn't make you an annoying person. And that's kind of the second point I want to get to, which is I definitely felt at times like I was a very annoying person to the people around me. And in fact, I might have been a very annoying person to the people around me. But the truth of the matter is, if you're fighting for your life, you just have to do what you have to do. And so the other thing that I talked about on Rosie's podcast that I've been thinking about a lot is to focus on the resources that you have, both the inner resources and also the any outer support system that you have. And if you don't have an outer support system, seek one out. It can be just, for me, it was, it was the key to my healing. That and antidepressants, which I, you know, have talked about before. But I, even with the antidepressants, um, the antidepressants got me out of the feeling of being in the basement of my life so that I could be, you know, in the living room with everyone else and enjoying what everyone else enjoyed to a certain extent. But to really maintain a sense of long-term healing, it required me to just understand myself a bit better. And it required tools for just self-regulation and managing my the intensity of of my um, constitution and my emotions. So for me, I I used to say all the time, like it took a village to help me through my depression. And it's the truth. Uh, It took lots of different healing modalities. Acupuncture is the first one that comes to mind. But I mean, I did a lot of different things. Writing helped me, anything creative, anything that got me into a flow state. And I'm talking about when I was out of an acute crisis. Um, These having resources can help you in the long term when you go through bumps in the road. Another thing that helped me was the law of impermanence, basically. And this didn't help me the first time I went through a a depression slash anxious period. It it helped me later because I had already had a, a meditation practice and a yoga practice. And so, you know, you talk, we talk a lot in Buddhism about impermanence. 
and that everything is is constantly in a state of change and flux. And sometimes I think when we first learn this in spiritual practice, it can seem like a big downer. Like, wait, what? I just got everything figured out, you know? Uh, or I just got into, I just did my first 45-minute med- meditation and it felt great. Or I just got into such and such pose. Or what do you mean? Like, this state isn't going to, you know, I can't just do the right things and and have all these things work out forever and ever. Amen. But when you are depressed, the law of impermanence can be your best friend. Okay. Because you can remind yourself over and over again, as many times as you have to, that this state will not last forever. That this feeling, that this pain, that this sense of brokenness, that this sense of not knowing what's going to happen next, that it will shift and change. It will. It does. I used to actually tell myself that, actually, this was this was after a really bad breakup uh, in my early 30s that, that really sent me into, I think I was trying to go off my antidepressants at the same time as this breakup, because that's those are the things that you do when you convince yourself that antidepressants are bad. And so that combination kind of put me in the basement. And I remember just driving along, listening to music that made me happy and thinking to myself, you have no idea where you'll be two years from now. And I I consciously used to think about two years from that time because I didn't necessarily think tomorrow was going to be different. You know, a lot of times people who aren't depressed will tell people who are depressed like, oh, go to sleep and you'll wake up and everything will be better or do yoga and afterward everything will be better. And if you're really, really clinically depressed, that's usually not the case. Usually the visitor might go away for that period of time, but as soon as you wake up, it comes right back, comes barreling back to you. So I can remember thinking like, I might still be in pain tomorrow. I might still have insomnia the day after tomorrow. A year from now, I might not have it all figured out. But two years from now, my life could be completely different. Like the shape of my life could be completely different in ways that I can't even anticipate yet. And that's the beauty of impermanence. Okay, so I did not script this episode. I am always so impressed by the people who do these these episodes without scripting them. I just wrote little bullet points. I, I didn't script it because I wanted to get it out there. <laughs> and if I scripted it, it would have taken me too long. So I'm hoping that I'm not forgetting things. But the other thing that I want to add is, you know, I, I took in as much of the advice as I could about taking care of myself in the very traditional ways that doctors tell you, like sleep hygiene and exercise and eating well and all those things. That can be really, really hard when you're depressed. So the thing that helped me, I think even more than that, or in in a complimentary way to to that advice, was to pay better attention to my senses. Just being a very sensitive person who needs a lot of quiet, I... I finally started to listen to that voice and not think that 
you know, choosing not to go to the party or really not enjoying the party or just needing to be in a quiet, warm place with nourishing food and a really bad TV show or a funny TV show. Or I, I started to, to just more actively cultivate what I, what I needed, just responded better to my own needs. It'd be interesting. I mean, let me know if this is something that you struggled with. I think this is in part what led me into depression and anxiety was I ignored my own needs for so long and and felt guilty about having needs that seemed counter to so many other people around me. So at the same time, I I realized that it was not a good idea for me to completely isolate. And I I, I think this is really important for everyone. So one of the things that I love so much about living in a city is that for the times when I was feeling really sensitive and didn't necessarily want to go on a big social outing, I could still get out of my house, take a walk, see the person at my local grocery store who knew me, see the video store guy, go to the cafe and get a tea because <laughs> I wasn't, wouldn't be drinking coffee at that time. And being immersed in sort of the normalcy of life and seeing that life goes on and that people are okay and that I will be okay too at one point really helped me. So it's a balance, but I think it's important to remember that both are important. And if you feel like you're isolating too much to try to figure out some way that makes sense to you to be around people. And if you feel like you are overwhelmed and overstimulated and being around people is too much to find a really luxurious, comforting way to take care of yourself. And then let's see, the last thing I want to offer in terms of things that helped me was to play the role of my own, being my own parent. And I, you know, this is not, I had great parents, (laughs) but there's, like I said, there's only so much that you can talk about with other people before either it fatigues them or you just feel too vulnerable sometimes to talk to the people who are closest to you or it just doesn't always work to 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 talk about it. So in those times I would talk to myself the way that I I thought like the, the very best most loving parent would. And another way to think about this like I know that there's a meditation practice around this as well, where you can think of it as a parent, like an actual, you know, live human parent, or you can think of it as like the mother, the divine mothering energy of the universe. Um, and and just offer yourself as much loving, compassionate, nourishing feedback as you need. Again, like if the voice of depression is talking, you can use this parenting voice and talk back to it. That was extraordinarily helpful for me as I got a little bit older and, and you know, not that very first time I got depressed, but later in life. And then I will offer just these last few ideas. If you are someone who knows someone, you know, you have someone close to you who's going through depression it's so different for everyone, but I'll just say that I think universally the thing that works best is to just listen to them and 
try, (laughs) try your best not to immediately offer them advice. Try your best also not to say like, wow, that sounds so hard. I can't imagine. Those kinds of things can be so, so alienating when depression and anxiety already make you feel alienated. So just listen and acknowledge and listen and acknowledge and tell the person that you are here with them right now and hold the space for them. That's that's what people need the most. And then also I think if if it seems appropriate, for me, it was very helpful to have people who were encouraging. And, and some people, I think this makes their skin crawl, right? Like, don't tell me I'm strong and I'm going to get through it. But for me, that worked really well. <laughs> it worked really well to have a cheerleader and to have someone who could say to me, like, I know you're okay, even though you don't feel okay. I know that you're going to be okay, even though you don't feel that way right now. I know that you're going to be in love with life again. I know that you're going to appreciate the smell of a flower, you know, or just seeing a bird fly by. I know that these things, um, that you're not broken, basically. So I can't take away your pain, but I can tell you that I know what it's like to be in that pain and to get through it. And that's my wish for you. Sometimes it's day by day. Sometimes it's minute by minute. I know that feeling. It's really hard, but hang in there. You have every right to find your own happiness and contentment with being alive. I will put links to those two articles that I mentioned on the show notes page. You can go to yogalandpodcast.com slash bonus episode. Okay, everyone, until next week, be well.